Hey, Rocky Peak. Hey, great to see you. Uh, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And if it's your very first time, I want to welcome you. We're going to go into our time of teaching in just a minute. Uh, but I have a very special announcement. You know, that one of our, our, uh, our core values here at Rocky Peak, and it's number three of our seven core values, is what we call relevance of uh, reaching the culture. And what we mean by that is we believe the message of Jesus is the most important message in all the world, but it needs to be communicated to every generation in a way that's fresh and, uh, and compelling. And so this impacts every way, uh, everything we do here, kind of the way we share the message of Jesus. And so from time to time, that means that, hey, we need to upgrade some things or change some things, kind of make them more kind of current. And so for the last year or two, uh, our communications team has been working on designing a, kind of a new logo for our church, but also uh, a new uh, website and mobile app. And so, um, so we're really excited about this. So, like, if you're a longtime person at Rocky P, this is your church home, it's chances are you may not have been to our website for a while because you already know what's going on. But you know, in this day and age, people, when they're checking out a church, they usually don't just go to the church and check it out. They go to the website. The website is the front door to your church, and they decide whether this is the place for them. So we wanted to create a website that really gave the, the look and feel and experience of Rocky Peak. You could come on, you could feel what it looks like, look what the people look like, look what the spaces look like, hear the messages, uh, actually do a topical search of a message you want to do, hear life transformation stories. And so uh, this weekend, uh, we're launching our new uh, website. And we're uh, launching, uh, and I want to introduce to you our new uh, logo. And so we have just a brief little video, I think it's 59 minutes, no, just kidding, uh, to, uh, to just share uh, our new logo with you. Let's like, turn our attention to the screens. There we go. And uh, actually, much of that footage you just saw is on our website. You're going to see video when you go on our website now to get a feel for the church. Uh, and so um, you're going to be seeing some slides coming up behind me right now that just going to give you a feel for the look and feel of the new website. But we also want to um, introduce you to our new uh, mobile app. And so uh, if you already have our mobile app, uh, hopefully it's already switched over. Um, but uh, if you don't have our mobile app, you can just go, uh, uh, you can text right now, Rocky Peak app, all one word, to 77977. And for a mere $13.95, no, <laughs> you can get that. So anyway, we wanted you to be aware of that. So go home, check it out. Don't check it out now during the sermon. Like, do not do that. But... Uh, check it out. Uh, what you'll be seeing in the coming weeks and months is you'll begin to see our logo and new signage changing around our campus. Next week, you'll be able to have, uh, we'll have some shirts. Uh, in fact, they look like pretty much like this shirt, except they're not this color. This is a staff color for black, but we have some shirts next week. And so we'll have some other uh, kind of uh, water jug things, you know, whatever, you can hold your water cool, all that kind of stuff. We're going to have cups and things like that. So 
Uh, anyway, that's all coming, but just want to let you know what's going on with that. But it's all in an effort really to reach out, especially to people who've never been here, and help them experience what it's like to be here so they can break down fears and they can feel like, hey, this is a place that feels comfortable, a place that I could relate to to go, hurt, to go pursue God in my life. Amen? I'm so excited about that. All right, we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week. But again, if you're new here, you may not know that. So go ahead and take that out. That will definitely help you follow along. And then if you guys are ready, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful to be here in your place underneath your name, um, your house, and we're coming as your people and your place to pursue you. And so, God, as we talk about this very important topic today of spiritual warfare, how truth transforms us, uh, the enemy's tactics, we pray that you would help us grow in our discernment so we can win this battle that we're in. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today. In a, in a large metropolitan city, and uh, he has just heard the news. In fact, uh, the rumor mill is running full speed, and bits and pieces of the rumor are coming into where he's at. And it's, it's often case in times of tragedy, uh, there the, the bits and pieces of information are not always consistent. They're sometimes conflicting. Um, but as he stands back and tries to put together the picture, certain things are becoming clear that there's been an act of violence. Um, and uh, it's, it's a brutal attack. And that about seven people have been injured. And uh, the crazy thing is, in, uh, in, in one sense, this is all his fault. And so... Um, so he doesn't know what to do, so he loads up, grabs a couple buddies, and they begin heading towards that part of the city where supposedly this attack took place. Well, today we are continuing the series we started last week. This is called Metamorphosis Transformed by Truth. And if you're, uh, if you're new, we want to welcome you. Um, this series is actually, the way I describe it, is like the third season in a longer-running drama uh, called Metamorphosis. And the whole longer series is based on a letter that was written by one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul, or we call him the Apostle Paul. And he's writing to a group of Jesus followers, most of whom, or many of whom, he led to the Lord uh, about five or six years earlier in southern Greece, uh, in a major metropolitan city of Corinth, one of the most important cities at the time in the Roman Empire. And, and so uh, last week we kicked off this series and we saw that the Apostle Paul is facing a new challenge in the church of Corinth. Apparently, some new teachers have come in from the outside who are bringing a different message. Paul describes it as a message of a different Jesus, uh, a different spirit, a different gospel. And the problem is the Corinthians are buying in. They're open to this new message. And these new leaders are self-promoting in a big way how great they are, how, uh, how wise they are, how their teaching is, and they're really undercutting Paul's leadership and trying to take over the whole church. 
And so Paul is 300 miles away. He's not really sure what to do. Uh, He doesn't really want to enter in and go toe-to-toe and kind of compare his resume with theirs. He knows that's the worst way to pick leaders. Um, But because of their foolishness, because their lack of discernment, and because the danger that they're in of really being completely deceived and destroyed, uh, he decides he has to kind of throw his hat in the ring, kind of enter the ring, kind of put on his gloves and and enter into the MMA, you know, kind of where like we need to get into this thing. And so he's going to do some things he would never normally do under normal circumstances because he thinks they're ridiculous. And so with that as an intro, we're going to go ahead, and there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Spiritual Warfare, Truth and Deception. And if you have your Bibles, your apps, let's go ahead and open up to 2 Corinthians, and we're starting at chapter 11 and verse 1. So Paul says, I hope you will put up with me with a little foolishness. So he is about to jump in. In fact, later in the chapter, we'll look at this more next week, but he's about to jump into this comparison. You know, here's what they're claiming. Here's what I bring to the table. And honestly, he feels ridiculous doing this. As a follower of Jesus, the only thing he wants to brag or boast about is like who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in and through his life. This is like the worst way to pick your leaders. But again, because of the dire circumstances, he's going to jump in and be a fool. Like sometimes you have to act like a fool to reach fools, right? And that's kind of what he's doing here. And so he says, uh, yes, please put up with me. And he says, now here's why. Here's why he's going to need to be foolish. Because I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, remember back in Genesis 3, the start of the story, so that, I, uh, that your minds, remember last week we talked about the battle for our minds. He said your minds may somehow be led astray from their sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And so this is why Paul is willing to roll up his sleeves, jump into the arena, and act like a fool. Because they're in serious danger of walking away from Jesus altogether. Now, he's using a powerful metaphor here, one that would be obvious to them, not so obvious to us. He's using an analogy or metaphor of uh, a betrothal, a marriage betrothal in the ancient world. So in the Jewish world, when a girl was going to be married, the father would broker that deal with the other father, and, and she would be betrothed to her, her fiancé. Now, a betrothal is similar to an engagement, but it's much more a binding. So, for example, once you're betrothed, you're legally married, right? So you haven't had the wedding yet. You haven't, uh, you haven't slept together yet but you're legally married. So much so that if your spouse dies, uh, say the man you're gonna marry dies during your betrothal, which usually lasts about a year, that you are considered a widow. And if you want to break a betrothal, it's a, you have to be, get divorced. Right? 
So in this analogy, Paul is comparing himself to their spiritual father, something he's, he's done many times in Corinthians. He led them to the Lord, and so he's like their spiritual father. And he says, I betrothed you to your fiance, who is Jesus. Well, when's the wedding going to happen? When Jesus comes back. And so I betrothed you to him. And so it was the father's responsibility to make sure that his daughter was loyal um, and pure and chaste during that period of betrothal so that when the time came for the marriage, she had never slept with a man. She was sexually pure. She was a virgin. So Paul says, what I'm kind of like, I, I led, you know, I betrothed you to Jesus as your fiance, and my concern is that in the same way Satan deceived Eve, that you're being deceived into a spiritual affair with a different Jesus. And so that's what he says next. He says, for if, verse four, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, so the same name, yeah, I'm telling you about Jesus, but different content of who Jesus is, other than the, the truth about who Jesus is. If someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. So the Corinthians, and we know this from 1 Corinthians, which was written like 18 months before, uh, we know that the Corinthians saw themselves as very wise. They saw themselves as very sophisticated. And as a result, they saw them as very open-minded to new ideas. And so uh, they don't realize the danger that they are in, much like Eve didn't realize the danger she was in. And so uh, in verse 5, he's going to begin now his defense again of his calling as an apostle. And so he says, listen, I don't think that I am at the least inferior to those, quote, super apostles. Now, the question is, well, who are the super apostles? Who is he referring to? And we're not sure. It's one of two options. Uh, either he's referring to these new teachers that have come in, uh, perhaps they're claiming to be super apostles, or even that Paul is sarcastically calling them, you super apostles. We'll see next week that Paul has the gift of sarcasm, which I believe is a spiritual gift. Um, um, yeah. And uh, so he may just be sarcastic about your super apostles, but it's also very likely that these new teachers that were coming in were saying, hey, Paul is not a real apostle. He wasn't like the apostles that Jesus chose, the 12, like the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He's not, he, he kind of poses as an apostle, but he's really not an apostle. And, that, and so that could be the accusation. And Paul's saying, I'm not, I don't, I'm not inferior to them. But either way, what he's saying is that I'm, a, I'm the real deal. I'm, a, I'm an apostle of Jesus. And he said, um, I may be untrained as a speaker, but I do have knowledge. And so it appears that what's happening is that Paul apparently was not trained as a speaker in the Greco-Roman tradition. If you were in, uh, in Corinth this time, went to school, one of your three big topics would be rhetoric. That this was a mark of an educated person. You learned how to speak and how to present 
in a very orderly fashion. And it was, it was big time sport in Corinth to listen to great speakers. And they would say like, a great speaker can persuade you of anything. You know, and so, so like take this position and they can persuade you. Take the opposite, they can persuade you. So this was a big part of the Corinth in the Roman Empire and in Corinth. And, and Paul apparently wasn't trained like that. And so he said, listen, these new teachers probably were. And this is one of the things that, that, that the Corinthians loved them because they, they, they kind of felt like a real leader finally. Uh, and so Paul says, hey, I'm the first to admit, I'm not a trained speaker, but I have knowledge. Like, I know what I'm talking about. And now he's going to pick up another issue um, in verse 7. And let me, I want to explain it because it's kind of complicated. Uh, it's, this issue comes up several times in both 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, but there was an issue that the Corinthians struggled with Paul over his approach to financial support. So Paul had chosen early in his ministry not to ever receive financial support from a church that he was currently leading, okay, currently ministering. Uh, now, uh, he had the right to receive this. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 9, he'd already talked to him once, is that Jesus taught this, that if you, if you spend your life uh, advancing the gospel, like you're in ministry, you should make your living from the gospel, right? But Paul had chosen not to do this. He felt like he would be more effective for Jesus if he didn't ever receive money from a church that he was currently starting. And I'm sure there are many reasons. For example, uh, this would remove any charge. Because remember, the gospel is going out into new areas. This message is never gone. And so, first of all, this would remove any charge that you're in it for the money. You're sharing this for the money. Uh, secondly, uh, this was a way uh, for, uh, for Paul to make sure that he was not in anyone's debt. In the ancient world, there was a concept called patronage or patronage. And so you would have wealthy patrons that would support speakers, support artists. And so you are now beholding to them. And Paul didn't want to be beholding to anyone for his message. And then finally, in one passage, he, he says this. He says, you know what? I have no choice of speaking the gospel. Like, uh, Jesus called me. I've, I've been commissioned. Like, I'm a dead man if I don't do this. I'm compelled. He said, but so what reward do I get? He says, if I do it without charge, I will one day receive a reward for that. And so this is why, but this was so confusing to the Corinthians. It didn't make any sense. And so for them, for some of them felt like, I don't think he really loves us. It's like he won't receive any gifts from us. You know, no, there's no give and take. Like, like, think of you, like if you came and you gave me a gift sometime, thank you for leading us. So I just want to bless you and get, oh, no, no, I won't receive it. It could feel like a rejection, right? And so that's why I receive all gifts graciously. <laughs> it's for the sake of the kingdom. Um, uh, so, uh, so they felt like a rejection. And here's the thing that was really confusing. Like when Paul was in Corinth, he'd received gifts from other churches because his philosophy was, I won't receive money when I'm with you, serving you, but if you want to help uh, support me advancing the gospel like we would a missionary today, that's fine. You're, you're partnering with the gospel. So while he's with them, he'd received money from other churches, which made him feel like, well, you love those churches more than us. They were very competitive. And then there was even the accusation that Paul, yeah, he looks like he's taking the high road. He won't receive any money. Hey, but he's really hitting this up for this big initiative for the poor. Remember that? And I'm sure he's like skimming money off the top. 
later on. So he looks cool, but it's really like underhanded. And so Paul is constantly having to address this. And so this is what he, well, we'll just read through this part quickly. But in verse seven, he says, was it a sin for me to lower myself in order to elevate you by preaching the gospel of God to you free of charge? Like, do you have a problem with that? He said, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so as to serve you. And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone for the brothers who came from Macedonia in the north supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and I will continue to do so. As surely as the truth of Christ is in me, nobody in the regions of Achaia, that's the larger province of which Corinth is the capital, will stop this boasting of mine. Why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. He said, and I will keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. So what we'll see, these new leaders have come in and they're all into the money. In fact, we'll see next week, they're abusing them, they're ordering around, they're charging a lot, they're taking advantage financially. And Paul says, I want you to realize our different hearts uh, in this. I'm not gonna change what I'm doing. And so he said, um, and then in verse 13, he lowers the boom. And he says, for such people, these new leaders that have come in, they are false apostles. They're deceitful workers. They're masquerading as apostles of Christ. It's like a Halloween party. They're looking like they're apostles of Christ. They aren't. He said, and no wonder, because Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants, these new leaders, also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. In other words, they're going to hell. Their, their judgment, they're gonna be under the judgment of God for deceiving the people of God. So that's the passage. Pretty heavy, huh? Pretty heavy. So what I wanna to do today in the time that we have is you know, last week we kicked off this series and we looked a lot on spiritual warfare. We saw how, how the enemy's biggest tool in our life is, uh, is, is how spiritual warfare at the highest level is the level of ideas. I wanna build on that today. And so there in your notes, you have a section called Spiritual Warfare, The Battle for Truth. Remember this whole series where we're, we're exploring how uh, the, the important that truth plays in our transformation. And so we're gonna talk about the battle for truth. And so the first principle is the same one we started with last week, but I wanna start there again for reasons that have become obvious. And so the first principle goes like this, spiritual warfare is real. Now, if you were here last week, you'll, you'll recognize it. This is where we started our journey last week, but I think it's important to start here again. Is one of the principles we learned last week is that when a man or woman comes to Jesus, that we cross over an invisible line in the unseen realm. That we switch sides in this spiritual war that's been going on from the early days of our, raid, of our race, and that when we come to Jesus, because we switch sides, we enter into a new level of spiritual warfare. And it's very real. You remember last week we started with this verse in Ephesians 6 again, we're just gonna hit it real quick. Finally, be strong in the Lord 
and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's what? Schemes. If I remember right in the Greek, it's the word methodias, his methods. So the enemy has a plan. One of the things we learned last week is not only we have an enemy, but the enemy is brilliant, he's powerful, and he's strategic. That he is scheming against us. Now here's what I want you to catch. Sometimes these schemes are obvious. They are blatant. Other times, they are very subtle. Let me give you an example. We started the day with a story of this man in a major metropolitan area that hears rumors of a brutal and violent attack that really kind of in some way traces back to him, and he goes to check it out. This is a story from the life of the Apostle Paul. And it's a story that takes place in Ephesus where this passage was addressed to about spiritual warfare. So don't miss that connection. And so when Paul came to Ephesus, and we were told this in Acts chapter 19, when Paul came to Ephesus, he spent longer there than any other location that we know of. He spent almost three years there. Ephesus was famous for its work, for its occult. It was a famous occult center. And when Paul came to Ephesus, the Holy Spirit empowered Paul to do supernatural miracles at an unprecedented rate. You know, it's funny, it's like when you read the New Testament, you kind of get the idea sometimes that it's like a miracle a minute. But it wasn't that way. There was times and seasons, there was more locations where there was more. And God empowered Paul to do an amazing and extraordinary miracles in Ephesus. So he was praying for the sick, they were being healed. There's many demonized people that he set free from demonization. And there was so much power as he was delivering people in the name of Jesus that people started, this is crazy, people started looking for handkerchiefs that he'd used or started looking for aprons. And, I, I, and we're kind of assuming this would be like a leather apron that he would wear when he was uh, working on tents, right? So it's like, can you imagine, Paul, like every time, where's that apron, right? So. <laughs> People were grabbing his stuff and taking it and laying it on sick people or demonized people, and they were being healed, and they were being set free. Unprecedented, like crazy. And so there's some Jewish people in the city, not followers of Jesus, who want to get on this power. They, they saw this as almost like a magic. Remember, occult's big. So they're looking at this almost like a, like a magic open sesame type of things. This name of Jesus is super powerful. Let's start using it. So there was a Jewish priest. His name was Sceva, and he had seven sons. And his sons apparently were in the exorcism business. And so they decided to try this out. And so they go to the house of a man who's severely demonized. I don't know if they knew that. And these seven men go into this house to pray for this man, to set him free. And this is what they said. I command, speaking to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, the Jesus that Paul preaches to come out. And I love this. The spirit started laughing. That's in the Greek. Uh, the spirit started laughing. This is like, and he said... I know who Jesus is, the Spirit speaking now. I know who Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but who the blank are you? (laughs) 
And remember, this guy has superhuman power. Remember like in Mark chapter 6, I think it's where the Gadarene, had, he was like breaking chains and cutting himself. This guy has superhuman power. He jumps on these seven men and beats them almost to death. And catch this, he not only beats them, he rips their clothes off. So you have seven streakers coming out <laughs> of his house, beat up, brutally beaten, seven naked guys running through the streets of Ephesus, and the rumor bell starts going, and pretty soon the whole city is shaking, like, what is going on here? Remember, it's a cult center. What is going on here? And we're told the whole city was afraid and held the name of Jesus in high regard. Like, uh, you may not want to handle that name. <laughs> So sometimes, whether it's in first century or whether it's in our century, whether it's in our country, it's around the world, the reality of spiritual demonic activity is very obvious. It's very real. And it's very blatant. And there's no question, hey, what's going on? But that's not always happening in Corinth. What's happening in Corinth was extremely subtle. It was a completely different type of approach that was about to bring them down. And that leads us to number two. So number two is that Satan's primary weapon is deception. So last week we talked about this. When we think of spiritual warfare, we often tend to think of the obvious, of the spectacular. We think of events like I just described. We think of uh, tales from the mission field that we'll hear or more even locally hear of really kind of demonization, extreme things. Uh, we think of kind of Ouija boards, or we think of uh, seances, or we think of uh, astral projection, or we think of um, kind of voodoo, and we think, and, th and these things are very real, and they're they're satanic, and um, they're very obviously blatantly so. But as we saw last week, that spiritual warfare at the highest level is at the level of ideas. Because if the enemy can control how you think, or if he can control how a culture thinks, he can control us, and he can destroy us. Uh, I think in our Western culture, this is rapidly changing as we're exploring as a culture, the occult more and more. But as a culture, the enemy has taken a completely different tack in Western culture. And Western culture, the, the, the attack is this big picture idea. If there is no creator, there is no God, then there is no spiritual warfare. There is no enemy. Uh, and, and if you can get a culture to buy, that, hey, there is no unseen realm, then you have free hand to work on that culture without them even looking for it. Right? So I think in our culture, he's taken a very different uh, approach, but here's what I want you to catch. That when we talk about Satan working in the unseen, in the, in the realm of big ideas, I'm not just talking about secular big ideas. That one of the enemy's 
most powerful tools to destroy our race are spiritual big ideas. And you see this in the life of Jesus. When Jesus was uh, in Jerusalem, he was talking to some of the religious leaders. And if you stop and think about that, the, the, the biggest enemies of Jesus were not the average everyday person, they were the religious leaders, right? And so um, in John chapter eight, Jesus is in dialogue with the religious leaders. Now catch this, this will be the equivalent of our pastors, the equivalent of our biblical scholars, the equivalent uh, of our Bible teachers, right? And so he's talking with these religious leaders and he says, you belong, there in your notes, you belong to your father, the what? Now I want you to like, let that sink in. It's like he's talking to their pastors, their spiritual leaders, and he says, your father's the devil. You're like um, children of Satan. Like, that's pretty strong. And you wonder why they killed him. So you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Well, what's he talking about? Well, he was a murderer from the beginning. Well, what's Jesus getting at? Well, think back to Genesis 3, the same passage that Paul's referring to of Eve being saved. Have you ever asked yourself, why did Satan deceive Eve? Like, what was the motive? Well, you remember that God had been very clear that if you rebel and cut yourself off from the source of all life, the end result is death. And Satan knew that. And so what he wanted to do, if he could deceive her and get her to obey, he knew it would be her end. It's like cutting your lifeline. You're gonna die. And so Jesus says, hey, this is who he is. This is who the enemy is. He's, remember like I said last week, he's, He's like a, a sociopath, like the ultimate sociopath who lives on grief, who lives to maim, who lives to hurt, who lives to destroy. And so Jesus says he was a murderer from the beginning. And then catch this, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language. Some of you in here, you're, you speak English as your second language. Like you're raised with a different language. And you know how at times, maybe especially under pressure or tension, like even you, you may revert to that, that's your native language. Like this is what, this is what comes naturally to you. That at times you have to almost like translate or hey, what's the word for that in English? He says his native language is deception. It's, it's not just what he does, it's who he is. And he says, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So what I want you to catch is that Jesus is telling us that, that one of Satan's primary weapons is deception. And here's what I want you to catch. It's not just secular deception, it's spiritual deception. An angel of light appearing to be true, appearing to be divine 
when it is actually damaging. And this is what's going on in Corinth. So we saw this today in 2 Corinthians 11. Remember how he started? He said, the reason I'm willing to be a fool is because, because I'm afraid for you that as Satan deceived Eve, the serpent deceived Eve, so you are being led astray. That right in your church, there, there's these com- people coming and they're using the same words, you know, Jesus, spirit, gospel, but they have a different meaning. And you are falling for it. You're in mortal danger of committing spiritual adultery and leaving your first love. Now, here's what I want you to catch. What was happening in Corinth is not unusual. This is one of Satan's primary ways of attacking believers is through spiritual deception. Later in Paul's life, at the end of his life, he'll write a letter to his young uh, protege, kind of younger pastor named Timothy. And in that letter, this is what he says there in your note sheet. He says, the spirit clearly says, so it's like a prophetic word, the, the spirit clearly says that in latter times, so catch this, from a biblical point of view, we're living in the last times. Any time after the resurrection of Jesus and the coming of the Spirit is latter times as far as the Bible is concerned. And so he says, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times, in these times that Paul was living in, some will what? What's he say they'll do? Abandon the faith. Now catch this, you can't abandon the faith unless you're in the faith. Are you with me? This is not talking about people out there. He's talking about people in here. He says, some will abandon the faith, and here's why. They will follow, catch this, deceiving spirits and things taught by what? Demons. Demons. This is in the church. And he says, such teachings come through hypocritical liars, like the teachers in Corinth, whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They have rebelled against the light for so long, it's like their conscience, they don't even feel truth anymore. And here's what, now he says, in this particular situation, here's what I'm warning you about. Now this is interesting, because when the enemy brings false teaching into the church, it can be a wide variety, but often it is uh, what we would call asceticism, which is um, like, uh, like legalism, Like asceticism is like denying yourself legitimate pleasures to get more spiritual. Other times he'll bring in license. It doesn't matter what you do, just ask Jesus to forgive you, right? Are you with me? The enemy uses both techniques. And in this case, it's asceticism. It's like a a legalism. And so he said, look what he says. So they forbid people to marry. Now, why would these spiritual leaders, inspired by Satan, teach people you shouldn't get married? Because in marriage, you, experience, you have sex. Sex is too much pleasure. And in an ascetic mindset, you deny, think of all the history of the church, the hair shirts, uh, the extreme uh, t- treatment of the body, that happened in Catholicism. The idea is the the more pain you have, the flogging of yourself, 
This idea that the, the more pain I endure, the less pleasure I have, the closer I'll get to God. And he says, this, is, this teaching, it doesn't come from the Holy Spirit. It comes from satanic spirits. And then he goes on and he says, they, they also forbid to abstain from certain foods. Why? Because certain foods taste too good. They're too much pleasure. You can have all the quinoa you want. Right? <laughs> that, hey, you know, hey, I'm giving up quinoa for Lent. I mean, you know. So I went, the idea is asceticism and and throughout, think of throughout church history, how many times this is held up as a way to get closer to God. You deny yourself legitimate pleasures that God created. And look what he says. He says, which God created, both sex and food, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know what? The truth. It sets you free. For everything God created is good. He's talking about Genesis chapter 1. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, the creation account, six times God said, and it was good. And on the seventh time, he said, it is very good. And within the history of the church, there's always been heretics that have risen up that have said, no, we can't have a legitimate pleasure. That teaching's not coming from the Holy Spirit. It's coming from satanic spirits. And he said, and so everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Because it's consecrated by the word of God. God said it was good. And by prayer, by my thanksgiving. And so when I sit down to a great meal and God says, this is good, and I say, thank you, that meal becomes a consecrated meal, right? And when I get on my motorcycle, <laughs> I say, God, this is good, I thank you. You see, the creation is a good thing. One of the lies of the enemy is to get us to, it isn't good. And that if it's fun or pleasurable, it's of the enemy. And if he can get us to buy into that, he can destroy us. So what I want you to catch as you look at both of these passages is that one of the greatest dangers for followers of Jesus is spiritual deception. And the question is, if that's the case, how do we defend ourselves? How do we hold on to the truth that will transform us? And that leads to this final section. It says spiritual warfare, taking your stand. And I want to give you just one key question to ask. I originally had two. I'll weave a little of the one and the other. But just for the sake of time, one key question that as followers of Jesus if we don't want to be deceived, if we don't want to fall prey to the enemy, we have to get into the habit of asking this question. And can I tell you, this is a very counter-cultural question. Our culture does not think this way today. And as followers of Jesus, we have to think this way if we want our minds renewed, if we want to be transformed. And the question is this, what is the message? 
that when we hear a new teaching, we need to ask, what is the message? Now you say, well, what do you mean? Well, the problem with the Corinthians, they were not paying attention to the message. They were paying attention to the messengers. And they were paying paying attention to the wrong things in the messengers. You see, these men who came in, they looked like leaders to them. And their culture, hey, we finally have some spiritual leaders. Paul's never really looked for a leader. He looked like a leader. He's always being beat up. He's always run out of town. Do you see what he wears? Where does he buy that stuff? The thrift shop? Uh, he, this guy is, hung, how can the power of Jesus be in him when his life is such a mess? And we've seen that the whole, the whole letter, right? And so they, they're struggling with Paul. He doesn't look like a leader. And these new leaders come in. And they are gifted. They are gifted speakers. And they have nice clothes. And they have powerful gifts. And they brag about themselves, which to us may seem odd, but in that culture is what you did. We'll talk more about that next, next week. But self-promotion was considered normal for leaders to do. It was an honor and shame culture, and you promoted yourself. This is why, like politicians, when they would build something in a city, maybe of their own money, they would put it and they'd say, this is donated by me out of my generosity, and I'm a great, and I'm amazing, and I just wanted to bless the city. And everyone saw that as normal. It's the teaching of Jesus about humility that's changed Western culture, so we feel awkward. But at that time, it wasn't like that. And they come in, they come in big, they come in bold, they have charisma, they start ordering people around, they start charging for money, they start abusing people, and the Corinthians are like, hey, these guys are like real leaders. (laughs) These guys are strong. Paul's kind of weak. He's sort of a failure. He can't even speak well. These guys, these guys are amazing. See, they were paying attention to the messenger, not the message. And even when looking at the messenger, they're looking at the wrong thing. Instead of looking at character and quality of person, they're looking at image. And can I tell you something? This is a description of our culture today, is it not? In our culture today, it's all about image. It's all about sound bites. Think of our recent presidential debates. This, I'm not getting political here. This will happen both sides of the aisle. But try to find out what policies people stand for today. It's hard to nail anyone down on what they believe about anything. You know why? Because they know our culture. And our culture has lost its ability to think. And so we are a culture of sound bites. We're a culture of Instagram. If you have a great Instagram and you look awesome and you're always put together and you got the right picture by the beach and you have 500,000 followers, you must be from God. (laughs) That's the way our culture is. And guess what? The church is becoming just like it. And so what happens is when someone comes, they hit a hit song and they make a, 
uh, uh, they sell a million, they become really famous as you, a Christian musician, or they, they write a book and it's super popular. They start a church that grows like crazy. Very few people are asking the question, what is the message? We are falling into a trap of just saying, they, they must know what they're talking about. Look how many followers they have. We are just like Corinth. And you look at Corinth, look what Paul says there in 2 Corinthians 11, 4, on your note sheet. He says, so if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, I mean, we, we told you about Jesus and who he was, and we, we talked about his gentleness, we talked about his humility, we talked about who Jesus was, we talked about the Holy Spirit, or if you receive a, a different spirit, we told you about the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit leads and guides and what the fruit of the Spirit is like love, it's joy, it's peace, it's perseverance. We, we talked about the works of the, we talked about what the Holy Spirit does, but if someone brings a different spirit or a different gospel, we talked to you about the gospel of who God is, who we are, how we're made right with him, how we enter into a relationship, his vision for our life. We've been, I was there for a year and a half teaching you about that, but if someone brings a different gospel, a different Jesus, a different spirit, you should be all over that. You should be saying, that does not line up with the truth, but you're not because you're not paying attention to the message you're too enamored with the messenger. And there's a great passage in the little book of Jude. If you've ever read Jude, it's easy to miss. It's a single chapter. Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, right? So same mother, obviously different father. And, um, you know, none of his brothers believed in Jesus, during his ministry, but after the resurrection, they all did. And they're like, okay, I guess you are special. Um, <laughs> no wonder mom loved you most. Um, but Jude writes this little letter, and he addresses an issue. In the church he's writing to, uh, there are new teachers that have risen in there. In their case, it wasn't asceticism or legalism. It was license. It doesn't matter what you do. And so they're, they're having kind of orgies and stuff. Anyway, so he writes to him and he says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all, catch that, once for all, entrusted to God's holy people. He says, I... I wanted to write to you, and I had some things in my heart about Jesus and our salvation. I wanted to talk about that. He says, but I've heard what's going on here, and I, I can't even get into that. I, I've got to stop you. And I say, hey, you, i got to urge you. I feel compelled. I urge you to fight for the gospel. It's like th this truth that God entrusted you like it's something precious, and there's something that's trying to take it away. Don't let that happen. You need to go to battle to protect it. And so what I want you to catch is that within the church of Jesus, one of the enemy's greatest uh, acts of spiritual warfare is to introduce spiritual deception. Now, outside of the church, 
He uses spiritual deception in different ways, right? Different Jesus, different gospel. So in Paul's day, what did that look like? All the gods of Rome and, and Greece, a spiritual deception that kept them in slavery. In our day, the Satan is an angel of light, all the different world religions. He doesn't care what you believe as long as you don't believe in Jesus. It's like you've got the disease, there's one antidote. I don't care what other things you try. So it doesn't matter what it's, it doesn't matter what it's world religions. It doesn't matter if it's cults. It doesn't matter if it's new age uh, kind of spirituality. That's, those things all work out there. But within the church, our greatest danger is, are not those deceptions. Our greatest danger is for teachers to arise from within our own movement that use the same language, Jesus, spirit, Bible, gospel, but a different dictionary. And if all we're paying attention is to how many followers, how gifted a speaker, how beautiful a voice, what an amazing author, if that's all we're paying attention to, we are in mortal danger. And so what happens is you'll have, and this happens from time to time, I've seen it over my life, people that rise up within the Christian community, maybe famous people, and they will say things like, well, I know the Bible says that Jesus is the only way, but I don't think that really means is that, is that uh, all paths lead to the same place, and Jesus is the end of that. Um, they'll, they'll come along and say, hey, I know that Jesus talked a lot about hell, but I think that was just more of a figure of speech because we know that God loves everyone. He wants everyone to be saved. And so I don't think it was really a, a judgment. We just kind of misunderstood that. Um, they'll come along and say, I know what the Bible says about human sexuality. I know how we've understood it. Sex is for marriage, for one man, one woman, lifetime commitment. But, but you know, um, we, they just didn't know then what we know now. And, uh, and, you know, really, if you go back and look at the Hebrew and the Greek, we've had it wrong for 2,000 years. And if the right person says it, and they're gifted enough as a speaker, and they've sold enough books, and they have a great Instagram account, and they got a bazillion followers... There are tons of Christians out there that go, well, maybe that's true. Because we're not looking at the message, we're looking at the messenger. And you say, well, Michael, but how do I know? I mean, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a Bible student, I don't know Hebrew and Greek, um, like how do I know? And I'd say a couple things. First of all, if you're a follower of Jesus and you're listening and following, you're walking with God, you have the Holy Spirit and you have a sixth sense for this. You have, in 1 John it says, you with false teaching, in the context of false teaching, it said you all have an anointing from the Holy One. 
And as the anointing teaches you, you listen and you'll be okay. And the second thing we have is we have the word of God. And here's the thing. You don't have to know Hebrew and Greek. If you just read your Bible, it doesn't take very long for you to realize all paths don't lead to the same place. And it doesn't take you very long to realize that the next life is real and there's a judgment coming and there's an eternal destiny. And it doesn't take you very long to realize that sexual purity is a big deal. In fact, Paul will say, hey, do not be deceived. Anyone who lives these lifestyles, you know, it's like nine things. 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And four of them have to do with sexuality. You're not inheriting the kingdom of God. But what we need, we need to do, is we need to rise up and get smart and realize the enemy's tactics. And we need to stop being fools like the Corinthians who are more concerned with the image of the messenger than what the message was. And there in your note sheet, it's interesting how Paul says, Ephesians chapter 6 Remember, this is the context of spiritual warfare. He talked about the beginning at the, at the top of the, of the message. We talked about, the, this is the end, and he talks about putting on your armor. And one of, the last, one of the last things he says, we're to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. You let go of your sword, you're going down. It's as simple as that. We live in a culture today that's pressing in on us from every angle, and if we're going to stand against the lies of the enemy, we have to have our armor on. And one of the most important pieces is the sword. Because the sword is the way we fight back. It's the way we win. By asking the question, not how cool is that messenger, but how cool is that message? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for teaching us continually this path to transformation leads through the door of truth. And so, Father, we pray that as we reflect on these things, we pray your Holy Spirit would write them on our heart. You'd give us insatiable appetite for truth and that we would become wise. We would not be like the Corinthians that are being deceived by Satan um, by his trickery, but that we would hold on to the real Jesus, the real spirit, and the real gospel, and that therein we would find truth and freedom. We pray this in Jesus' name. And as we continue our worship now, as we bring our tithes, our gifts, our offerings, we pray you'd use these to build a place that, spread, that shares a message of light and truth that sets us free. And we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me?